Hello and welcome to the latest episode of New PL Principles of Leadership and Business, the podcast series. I'm Paul, host of the New PL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. If you're listening to this podcast or iTunes or Spotify or another platform and you like what you hear, please take a moment to review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to ensure that you never miss another episode of the new PL, go to Principles of Leadership and subscribe. We'd love to have you as part of our community. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your focus, and your leadership has a clear vision and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week on the new PL, I'm incredibly excited to have tech legend Guy Kawasaki on the show. Now Chief Evangelist for Global Graphic Design Platform Canva. Guy's stellar career started as chief evangelist for the original Apple Macintosh in the 80s before establishing himself as an internationally recognized speaker, best-selling author, consultant, and now podcaster. So Guy, a huge yes. welcome to the new PL. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Pleasure. Um, the focus of this podcast is, as the name suggests, looking at principles and leadership in business. Um, you've written a lot in your books about sort of starting a business with meaning and looking to change the world and focusing perhaps less on the money at the outset and more on, on how you look at the world and how you want to add meaning to it. Um, so it'd be great to start the podcast with getting a view of your own business principles, your own values in business, and sure. maybe how those have changed over, the, over time as well. Sure. So uh, I think that if you look at the successful tech companies, uh, at some point, they truly do make meaning. They, they stop from being a gadget company and they make meaning in the sense of somehow improving the world. So Apple increases the creativity and productivity of people. Uh, Google democratizes information. I work for Canva right now and Canva is enabling everyone to communicate better with graphics. So there's, there's, those are meaningful statements. Uh, that's not simply making a buck. Personally, I have a mantra that's two words, which is empower people. So I hope when I'm gone, people say, you know, Guy empowered people with his writing, with his speaking, with his investing, with his advising, with his podcasting, all of the above. Okay. And do you feel your, your core business principles have evolved with you over the period you've been in business or have they always been well, at the essence well, of what you've done? One would hope that between the ages of 18 and 65, I did evolve <laughs> some. So, yes, I hope I have uh, pursued a higher and higher road, yes. In your book, uh, Rules for Revolutionaries, you, you dedicate it to your mum and dad. Mm -hmm. um, and in your words, because they taught me how to think, how to act, and how to defy, um, yeah. I wanted to take a, a few moments to explore your, your view on role models and particularly for those young entrepreneurs out there that perhaps don't have positive role models either personally or professionally, how they, how they cut through the veneer of the tsunami of business books and actually go to the right yes. people and get the right advice. I don't know if there's an answer to that question. Um, I, your listenership may not be familiar, but there's an NBA, retired NBA basketball player called Charles Barkley. Mm -hmm. And he had a very famous session where he said, you know, I'm not a role model. And um, 
I think it's very difficult to pick role models yeah. and to actually understand if the role model is as real as he or she seems. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then uh, this, uh, this is a very tricky question because, you know, let's take the, the ultimate sort of common role model, mm -hmm. Steve Jobs. So, you know, what made Steve Jobs great? Uh, is it the fact that he wore jeans and a black mock turtleneck? Did he buy Mercedes and never register them? Did he rip people, you know, in front of other people in public? Uh, did he humiliate people in public? Did he park his car in the handicap slot? Did he go in the carpool lane by himself? Did he see a graphical user interface future before anyone else did? Did he see the future of mm -hmm. you know, smartphones? You know, th there's a lot of things you can attribute to him. Yeah. And the dangerous thing is, you know, how do you pick and choose? And how do you, of course, separate correlation from causation? Because, mm -hmm. you know, at an extreme example, uh, he, he wore New Balance running shoes. Well, you know, if you go out and buy New Balance running shoes, not clear to me you're going to be the next Steve Jobs. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that's the danger in role models. Yeah. Um, I, I think role models should be... Oh, they should be approached with a degree of skepticism. Right. Okay. Um, in terms of role models and leadership, the be interested to get your views on the whether the business reaction to this pandemic has demonstrated, broadly speaking, and I know there's a there's a thousand and one examples, but mm -hmm. broadly speaking, innovative and imaginative approaches to uh, business within the pandemic and how we we build ourselves out of it. Or do you feel there's, it's exposed a paucity of, or a lack of imagination and diversity of thought at the top of our business today? Uh, that's a very good question. I, I think it may be too early to make that call. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly companies have been able to pivot. Uh, one of my sons works for eBay. You know, he hasn't been in since March. The other one works for Google. He hasn't been in since March, and he won't have to go until January so far could be even postponed beyond that. Uh, so people have, companies have definitely pivoted in terms of how to use a remote workforce, reduce the impact of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of companies have changed, you know, going direct from using a reseller, reseller uh, going all in in e-commerce because frankly, <laughs> there is no analog commerce right now. So we're seeing a lot of transitions, but, uh, yeah, we also see retailers going into bankruptcy. We see a lot of companies in danger. Uh, I don't know if 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 we've seen this shining example that will be the role model for every company yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're let's let's face it. We're only what four or five months into this. Uh, it's not clear to me that you know we have all figured it out yet. Yeah. When we eventually emerge from this over time, over the next six months, um, yeah. many people are naturally risk averse, uh, but many people will also be in a position with unstable jobs or, or redundancy that they will have to be more creative and more imaginative about how they move forward, perhaps than you know, for many, for the first time in their lives. They may have to yes. start businesses. They may have to look at additional routes to income. I'd be interested in your advice that you would give to those for whom necessity and fate has perhaps 
forced entrepreneurialism upon them? Yes. Well, my, my, at the top level, uh, I have a theory that bad times create good companies. Yeah. And you could also say good times create bad companies. <laughs> but let's just focus on the bad time right now because that's where we are. Uh, I would also debate that you know, this pandemic is not going to end in six months. Um, if you think we're going to have a vaccine and people are going to be flying all over the place and going to 10,000-person conferences, although yeah, apparently there's going to be a 20,000-person uh, rally in Oklahoma this Friday, which right. is a very dubious merit. So uh, I don't think it's going to end that quick. So I, I think that a very good way to approach this is to ask the question, therefore what? And by this I mean, you know, taking the landscape of pandemic and lack of travel and remote work, remote education, um, you can't exactly be dependent on Amazon so much now because, you know, Amazon may label your product non-essential. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, things and that it used to be that, you know, of course you tried to find the lowest cost manufacturer and that, that low cost manufacturer may be in China, but that was okay because, you know, you, you could work with them and communicate with them on the internet and, you know, do site inspections infrequently. And, you know, every once in a while a container would come from China and lo and behold, everything's there, right? Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? With the trade war, with a pandemic, you know, who knows if that factory in Beijing is open anymore? I mean, there's a lot of variables. So maybe you, by necessity, excuse me, excuse me, maybe by necessity, you'll have to find another vendor. Maybe not in China, maybe not in Vietnam, maybe not in South Korea, maybe in your backyard. And it may be worth more to, uh, it may be worth paying more for a steady supply than paying less and an unsteady supply. Uh, you could also make the case that, I, I know this is true for me as a consumer, you know, back in the day, like five months ago, uh, we, we had very picky, picky shopping habits, right? Yeah. To take a semi-facetious example, uh, go to the market and there's 40 kinds of peanut butter, right? There's like creamy peanut butter, chunky peanut butter, there's the eight ounce bottle, the 16 ounce bottle, the 32 ounce bottle, there's the GMO, non-GMO, there's the organic, there's the non-organic, yeah. there's the almond peanut butter, there's the peanut peanut butter, there's the, you know, I, yeah. There's 60 kind of peanut butters, right? Well, I'll tell you right now, I love peanut butter, obviously. Uh, <laughs> right now, I, I use Instacart. I have not been into a market in the last four or five months. And when I go to Instacart and I select Skippy, Chunky, 16-ounce, and Instacart delivers Skippy, Creamy, 8-ounce, it's not like I'm pissed off. I'm just saying, oh, at least I got peanut butter. Yeah. So, so I tell you this whole peanut butter story because it may be that you know you no longer have to have so many SKUs coming in from China. Mm -hmm. It may be that you can have a, a shorter, simpler product line made in America, and and these have enormous ramifications. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, one area of business that's talked a lot about at the moment is not just corporate purpose, but also importance of social purpose for that business and mm -hmm. Paul Polman, the ex-global uh, CEO of Unilever, talks a lot about integrating the UN's uh, SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, right into the heart of every business and that 
every business will eventually become a, a social enterprise, if you like. I wondered your view on whether you feel social purpose should be integrated into every innovation model for business or whether, you know, whether there's a role for it always or whether it sometimes business should just be delivering product. Well, uh, of course, you know, that's kind of a black and white question. But first, if you could define social purpose for me so that um, we're on the same page for sure. sure. <laughs> because one man's social purpose might not be another so, man's social absolutely. purpose. So if we take the example of the UN social uh, sustainable development goals, then that would be in terms of developing an innovation model for a, a business established or new you would look across those sustainable development goals and ensure that you are adhering to or working towards or applying some or all of those yes. goals within your innovation model. Yes. So I would say that um, social company, uh, not social companies, every company has a moral obligation. Yeah. And that moral obligation is to, you know, not pollute the earth, not oppress people. I mean, it's, not exactly rocket science, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's part and parcel of existing. And that goes, that is also true for every person, much less every mm -hmm. company. Uh, I, I just am a little skeptical when companies, you know, have this kind of aha moment and they hire a chief social officer all of a sudden and you know now they're going to be good people i mean yeah. they, they used to be making agent orange and now they found a chief social officer and kumbaya and you know now we're gonna have non-gmo agent orange or something yeah. uh, that's a little hard to to grasp for me yeah. um and I, and I also think that I think many people set set a dichotomy in their mind that we can either be you know profitable or socially responsible. Who said that those things are mutually exclusive? Um, yeah, Patagonia is an example. Um, you know, I buy stuff from Patagonia, and part of the motivation is because I like Patagonia's social responsibility and political stance. Yes. Um, yep. I mean, I, I read coincidentally a, an article from one of the senior execs at Patagonia a, a few months back, and they were questioning whether, to go back to our previous question, whether mm -hmm. a business can retrofit purpose into the business. So if you've always been a business that produces widgets, mm -hmm. and, and as you alluded to, you wake up one morning and think, I'm now going to become a purposeful business. Yeah. Do you think you can retrofit purpose in there, or does it have to sit in the fabric in the heart of a business from the beginning? No, I mean, I, th I think people, you know, a company, well, I think a company can retrofit a purpose. Um, now, that, that's a tricky statement. So I'm not saying you can put lipstick on a pig, right? I mean, because uh, to take an extreme example, uh, if you are a tobacco company, it's going to be a real stretch to find a chief social officer and say, okay, so now you're going to make it seem like we're a socially responsible tobacco company hmm I mean <laughs> you know let me think about this how are we gonna do that so now that's an extreme obvious example that it's hard to retrofit a tobacco company into something socially responsible um, but I, I, I don't want to say it's not possible because that's like saying you know people who have had difficulty with delinquency in their youth can never be a functioning adult. Yeah, and yeah. I know that's not true. So 
why can't companies be reformed? Why can't companies see the light? Yeah. Uh, I just, I just think we need to approach that with a little bit of skepticism mm -hmm. when they're putting lipstick on a pig, hiring a chief social officer and a PR firm and an ad firm, and they now have this new, you know, advertising about how yeah, we're trying to improve people's lives by having um, filtered cigarettes or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, while we're on the topic of skepticism, you, you use a fantastic Oscar Wilde quote in your book, Enchantment skepticism is the beginning of faith um i noted that book was published in 2011 and we obviously since then we've gone we have social media making it a more more and more transparent world we have far more skepticism in society perhaps currently with brands and institutions and leaders so i wondered whether you still believe that skepticism is the beginning of faith or has it become the end of hope Ah. <laughs> uh. God help us if it's the end of hope, because if it's the end of hope, we should probably pack it in right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that skepticism is more important than ever, and we should teach skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could make the case it may be more important to teach faith than skepticism these days. So I, I, for my podcast, Remarkable People, I just had a professor from Stanford named Sam Weinberg, mm -hmm. and he, he talked about interpreting history and also to figure out what can you believe online and how when you look at a website you know most people try to figure out if a website is legit by looking at their you know web address is it dot org dot org means legit dot org means you spend 25 bucks a year to get a dot org it doesn't mean anything about your legitimacy and then you read the about page and it's all you know pixie dust and unicorns and then you read the executives and they're all wonderful people who are socially responsible well he says that to truly understand a, a company and a website, you don't go vertical in the website, you know, going down and reading page after page. Right. You go horizontal, which means you go outside of the website. So you, you know, let's say it's an institution, you, uh, a not-for-profit institution, you type that into Google and you see, you know, what are the entries about Google? You type that into Wikipedia and you look at the analysis of Wikipedia. I think Wikipedia is a fantastic source yeah. Yeah. for skepticism. Uh, particularly the footnotes of every article mm -hmm. and so uh, I, I he makes the case and, and I saw the light in our interview that we should teach kids about literacy and skepticism from the moment we put a smart device in their hands mm -hmm. so if you give your kid a phone teach them how to be skeptical and not believe every YouTube video and not, you know, uh, because that is a life skill. I would make this case that skepticism and figuring out what's true is probably more valuable than math today. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, you were at Apple for a couple of 10 years at Apple over, over many years. Um, Steve Jobs was a big part of the heart of the brand's enchanting relationship mm -hmm. with its with its consumers. Um, how does a brand ensure that enchanting relationship endures after a a founder like Steve Jobs, yeah. or CEO like Steve Jobs, leaves? Because their charisma is so intimately woven into into that enchanting relationship. 
Well, um, I would say that 90% of the battle is just making good shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, as long as Disneyland is good, you know, Walt Disney doesn't need to be alive. And as long as uh, Apple makes good stuff, Steve Jobs is obviously gone. Yes. Uh, I, I think 90% of it is just making good stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I often tell people, uh, guy's golden touch, guy's golden touch is not that what I touch turns to gold. Guy's golden touch is whatever is gold guy touches. And so, you know, I touch Macintosh, I touch Canva. Uh, I didn't cause those to be gold, but right. they were gold and I got on the bandwagon. So yeah. the key to evangelism is evangelize good shit. And duh. Uh, so I think that's the key that, that, you know, it's not about preserving the cult of Steve Jobs. Uh, if you truly wanted to preserve Steve Jobs, every year you'd come out with a much better phone and a much better computer and a much better Apple experience and a much better Apple store experience, et cetera, et cetera. That's preserving the soul of Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. There are two elements, I guess, to building enchantment with a brand. One is the external, which we've discussed. The other is the internal, ensuring your, your employees mm -hmm. are enchanted with, with your brand as much as your consumers. You cite again in your book, EBWA, Enchantment by Walking Around, mm -hmm. um, which is keeping that connection with employees and that relationship. We're obviously going to be in a world for some time where... <laughs> We're not teams, walking around. <laughs> teams aren't going to be as interconnected as they used to yes. be. Lots of people working remotely. How do you maintain that, or the principle of EBWA? <sighs> Uh, first of all, you know my books better than I do, but uh, <laughs> um, that is difficult. Uh, you know, Zoom is not the same, right? Yeah. But uh, although, you know, you can make the case that uh, just if you did the math, physically, you can only touch so many people, right? Mm -hmm. Because of flights and, you know, I mean, it's just not that efficient. So if you could touch more people with Zoom albeit maybe, you know, not exactly physically close looking into each other's eyes, but uh, it, I guess in a sense, it is what it is, right? So yeah, we can bitch all we want about virtual appearances and virtual contact, but that's not going to change. I mean, the virus is not sitting there saying, oh my God, people are complaining about us. Let's, you know, pack up and go to Mars. Yeah. So you got to do what you got to do within what you can do. And if Zoom is the way, or if it's Slack, or if, it, you know, whatever it is, you got to do what you got to do. And, uh, you know, as they say, I never promised you a rose garden. So <laughs> that's just how it is. Was that Tony Orlando? Uh, I don't know if it was Evita or <laughs> Tony Orlando. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's an old song. Yeah. Um, there's a, a growing number of calls out there, and there have been for years. I think of John Mackey's book from Whole Foods, Conscious Capitalism. And, mm -hmm. uh, lots of people calling for a more compassionate capitalism now. They, I think the pandemic's accentuated that. Um, and I guess there's there's the argument that it needs a reset, you know, that all of those systemic inequalities that exist in society, despite unemployment being historically low in the US or the UK before the pandemic, 
mm -hmm. still saw some very strong structural inequalities. Do, do you feel capitalism needs a reset when, when we come out of this, whenever we do? Um, and how do, you, how do you think capitalism should look if you do believe it needs a reset? Oh, well, I mean, that, that is above my pay grade. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're talking major philosophical difference there. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, you know, I'm, I must admit that I'm, I don't consider myself cerebral, but I'm not saying I consider myself dumb either, okay? Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't consider my cerebr myself cerebral. I don't sit around thinking about existentialism. You know, what does it mean to be a capitalist? What does it mean to be a socialist? Uh, I certainly don't sit around thinking what it is to be a nationalist. And yeah. so, I mean, I'm just, I, that's not how my brain is wired. My brain is wired like, okay, you make something good, you sell it, you support it, you make something better. I mean, yeah. I'm a simple guy. Uh, and if that's capitalism, so be it. And, you know, do I think there should be better health care for everyone in America? Yes, absolutely. I mean, health care is a right, not a privilege. So does that make me a socialist? Okay, I guess so. But I don't, you know, I don't go down and look at, look at the checklist for socialism, look at the checklist for capitalism and yeah. form my beliefs that way. I just, I think I have an internal moral compass um, that, that is not, well, first of all, I think if you went to both people and said, what's a socialist? I, I don't know how many people could define that. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I couldn't. So, and what, I was in a conversation with someone uh, a, couple, a few weeks ago who kept in that conversation, said like four times, like you, I'm a capitalist. Like you, I'm a capitalist guy. Like you, I'm a capitalist. Like, what the hell do you mean you're a capitalist? Does that mean you believe in exploiting people? Does that mean you believe in... You know, shareholder return, does that mean you believe? It? I don't know what I believe, but you know, why don't you just tell me you make good shit in yourself. Yeah. Okay, that I can understand. Yeah. Do you, I mean, the, the traditional sort of product adoption model is the, the classic sort of bell curve in the yeah. early adopters and so on. Um, with social media and, and it's sort of its ubiquitous mm -hmm. and all-consuming nature, it's, I just wonder whether you feel it's changed the shape of the bell Completely. Curve. And what does that Completely. mean for innovation? I think the, that adoption curve is just totally out the window. Yeah. Um, th there's a very good book. Uh, God, I'm not going to remember the name of it right now, <laughs> of course. I, oh, it's, I think it's called Absolute Value. Right. Um, and, and if that's the name, um, basically the gist of the book is saying that you know, you're right. There used to be a product adoption curve where the pioneers bought the first Macintosh, then the early adopters bought them, yep. and then the you know the the less risk averse people bought them, and then finally Main Street bought it. And you know, you wouldn't be laughed at or or ridiculed for buying a Macintosh. And so, same thing was true with Tesla, right? Mm -hmm. The real nutcases bought the first Tesla. Slightly less nutty people bought the second Tesla, yeah. and now everybody's buying a Model 3, right? You don't, there's no sort of, you know, what are you, some kind of hippie freak for buying a Tesla anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. You could say that about a Prius too. So, but I, I truly don't, I truly believe that that isn't how the world works today mm -hmm. because of the speed of transform, transmitting of information. Yeah. And by that I mean, uh, let's take a book example. In the old days, kind of waited for the 
Kirkus or Publishers Weekly or the New York Times Book Review or the Washington Post Book Review to review a book. And if those learned people said that this book was good, then you went out and bought it, right? Well, who does that anymore? <laughs> so now you go to Amazon and you see a book and it's cumulative four and a half stars. You read the first two or three comments and God knows what algorithm Amazon is using to pick those first two or three. Is it more recent, most popular, led to the most clicks? Who knows what Jeff Bezos did, but somehow you look at the book, four and a half stars, first three comments, really positive. You click, it's in your cart. Next thing you know, you got the book, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, did you wait for the New York Times book reviewer? No. Uh, the, the three reviews were from Tiffany 15 and Trixie in LA and Biff in Dubuque. Yeah. Who the hell are these three people? So that means that it, it's not like the New York Times is making a book anymore. I think Trixie and Biff and, you know, Duke are making the book and and what's happening is you look at the cumulative rating in Amazon and bada bing, bada bang, you buy. That's a very different model than sucking up to the power elite at established yeah. publications and hoping that they will bless you. Yeah. That just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. What do you see on the sort of tech horizon, you know, as we move into the to the much lauded fourth industrial revolution? What 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 exciting bits of tech do you see out there that that give you excitement about the future, inspiration that you know that will help to evolve uh, human development. What do you see? Well, it, 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 in my world, I mean, if, if I had a magic wand, uh, I I would like to address climate change because mm -hmm. I mean that that is literally existential, right? So that could end life which is not quite as important as, you know, I don't know, Bitcoin um, or cloud-based computing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in a perfect world, these companies would come up ways with, you know, new kinds of bacteria that eat plastic and uh, you know, easy ways to get off uh, coal-based, carbon-based fuels and you know, those kinds of things. I think that's the future. Yeah. Many of the, um, the big tech giants are almost, I guess, natural monopolies uh, in some respects. Mm -hmm. um, I wondered what your view is on what responsibilities you believe those entrepreneurials have to, to business and society and government and, and yeah. for that sort of privileged position, if you like. Well, I, I think that, you know, well, I don't, I, the term natural monopoly, I think, is an oxymoron. I mean, pe people or companies achieve monopoly positions by doing unnatural things, mm -hmm. being unnaturally lucky. Don't get me wrong. Now, having said that, don't get me wrong. I wish I was a shareholder in a few <laughs> monopolies, okay? Yeah, <laughs> Just to be honest. Like, like if Canva monopolized graphics, I'm okay with that. I yeah, am okay yeah. with that. So, so I, I think that, you know, the thing we have to think about is, when people say there's a monopoly, um, usually the bad part of being, of having a monopoly is the thinking that, okay, so this company has cornered the market for X 
And now that it has cornered the market, it's going to increase the price and screw everybody because now you can't get it from any place else. Yep. Well, let's think about that. Now, you know, what company can you say that about? Uh, does Google have a monopoly on search? Hmm. Does Facebook have a monopoly on social media? Uh, you know, is anybody forcing you to use Google? Is anybody forcing you to use Facebook? If you don't trust Facebook, don't use Facebook. Yeah. And let's say that Facebook has achieved monopoly. Not that it has, but let's suppose it has. So now what? It's going to what? Jack up the price for using Facebook, except that you don't pay anything to use Facebook. So you don't pay anything to use Facebook, and there are other sources of social media. Doesn't sound like a monopoly to me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I think using the M word is kind of dangerous. So, yep. you know, you broke up the monopoly because, I don't know, you could only get gas from one company, and so that company could take gas from a dollar to five dollars, and you'd be SOL because where else can you buy gas? Yeah. I, I, I can't think of another situation. Now, you may say, okay, so what happens to the first company that comes up with the vaccine for the coronavirus? And they decide, yep, uh, bada-bing, bada-bang, we've got the solution that billions of people need, and it's going to be, you know, $500 a dose. Yeah. Well, I tell you, man, just the forces of hell would come down upon that company so strong. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that would be like that guy. Uh, what's the guy who took over the drug company and then oh, jacked yes. up the price? And now yeah. he's in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned in one of the videos I was watching when I was researching this that um Steve Jobs used to talk about entrepreneurs needing to make their dent in the universe. Yes. I wondered when you look back over your career to date, what well, what is the you know, where, what's the dent that you've made in the universe <laughs> that you're most proud of? That you uh, uh, maybe I've made a few dimples, maybe not dents. <laughs> um well I was at least a part of the Macintosh yep. dent, right? So my role there was to convince people to make Macintosh software. So, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was the major dent maker there, but I contributed, a, you know, a slight deformation of the universe. <laughs> so that's one. Um, I think with Canva, I'm helping people dent the universe or yeah. dent dent history because we're increasing the ability for people to communicate so we're empowering people to make their own dents yeah. on one hand and we're also um, denting the the world of graphic design because we're enabling people to make their own graphics mm -hmm. um, but in general I just hope that I I may not have dented the universe directly but with my writing, speaking, interviews like this, my podcasting, I enable people who did dent the universe. Absolutely. Um, so I'm a second-order denter. <laughs> um, it would be remiss of me as a surfer not to have a quick conversation with you about, <laughs> about surfing before we go. Um, yeah. I mean, I've surfed off and on for years. I've, I've never found anything that gives that mix of spirituality punctuated right. by, by adrenaline, you know? Yeah. What, what is it? At, at, um, <laughs> what's it giving you? 
And well, thank God surfing is not illegal because we'd all be in jail. Um, you know, I, I took up surfing at 60, which is 55 years too late. And if I may be open and transparent and truthful, you know, we had this uh, interview set up for nine and I moved it to 10 so I could surf. Good man. Good man. <laughs> so I don't like to tell that to people because they might get all bent out of shape. Like, how dare you make me move my schedule so you could surf? Well, tough shit. And, you know, don't interview me. <laughs> well, on the other hand, no, you know, to be quite honest, if, if, if I were the podcaster interviewing somebody and they said, listen, I got to postpone for an hour, I would say, yeah, hallelujah, you're doing me a favor by being the interviewer. And then if they told me that they did it to be with their kids, to surf, to play golf, to whatever, I'd say, hello, freaking hallelujah, man. Like, life is too short. If you can have one more hour of enjoyment, go for it. So anyway, uh, well, I think surfing is so great because it's, it's physical, right? So you're getting exercise, you're burning calories. It's so hard. It's so hard because there's so many variables. And the variables include the wind, the water, the swell, you know, the, the size of the waves, the direction of the waves, the speed of the waves, yeah. the size of your board, the other people in the water. Uh, I mean, now, uh, clearly, I'm a beginning surfer, so you know an experienced surfer has assimilated all of this into one condition, and just yeah. they just know what to do, right? And I am nowhere close to that. I, I, I can say that this this Zen like you know out of body awareness without awareness. I have achieved that in other things, but <laughs> not surfing. And so surfing is the hardest thing that I've ever tried to learn by far. You've met some. Uh some legends. I mean, Jeff Clark and Sean Thompson is a, yeah, yeah. two big men to meet. Amazing. I, yeah, I and, and I, I have been fortunate. Um, well, you know, when I go into something, I go all in. And yeah. so, <laughs> I must have 12 boards. I, I, I'm oh. now living in Santa Cruz. I surf at least once every day. <laughs> awesome. Amazing. <laughs> well, you're blessed to be where you are. I uh, am. Yeah. Um, just before we go, just one more question. We usually end each podcast with sort of the new PL to the point section where we ask a guest just to give one or two takeaways, key takeaways that listeners can use in their business. What would mm -hmm. be a couple of pieces of, pieces of advice for okay. entrepreneurs? So I, I, a couple of pieces of advice. The so number one is, you know, understand that the role of an entrepreneur is to create customers. Now, you create products, you create services, but all of that is to create customers. Mm -hmm. And if you create enough customers, everything else works out. That's number one. Number two is uh, never ask people to do something you wouldn't do. Uh, if, if you wouldn't go through CAPTCHA to get a free account, don't expect your customers to do that. Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't fly coach halfway across the world, you know, then don't expect your employees to do that. Yeah. If you want to get paid net 30, then don't screw your vendors around and pay them net 90. Um, you know, so don't ask people to do something you wouldn't do. Of course, this assumes you're not a psychopath, but yeah, uh, yeah that would be my second piece of advice. The third piece of advice is um, understand that, especially in a pandemic, that the race we're running is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Yeah. So... Just be prepared for a long run. Yeah, yeah. 
Guy, um, thank you so very much for You're your very time welcome. today. That's been awesome. Can I make a plug though? Yep. For everybody who listens to this, go to remarkablepeople.com and yep. subscribe to my podcast because Absolutely. I truly, I think I have the most remarkable guest list in podcasting. So I have people like Jane Goodall, Margaret Atwood, Wozniak, Steve Wolfram, Steven Pinker, Bob Cialdini, Roy Yamaguchi, the chef, Christy Yamaguchi, the figure skater. Uh, I have Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate, and wow, what a lineup! I promise you, I promise you, I have the best guest list in podcasting. Fantastic, guy! Thank you so much. I absolutely appreciate your time. Thank you, thank, thank you. you, thank you for delaying an hour so I could get another hour of surfing in. <laughs> not at all, not at all. <laughs> all right, take care. Yeah, take care, guy. Thank you. Okay. Bye. For all of you who are interested in finding out more about what Guy does and his podcasts and his books and his keynote speaking, please go to GuyKawasaki.com. And to all of you who have downloaded and listened to this podcast and many others, thank you very much. Please take a moment to review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to be interviewed on the new PL or you've got a topic that you'd like to discuss, please drop us a line. Go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe. So I'm Paul for the new PL. Thank you once again for taking the time and go well and stay safe.